swing and a fly ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. Right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carlos in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. He's retired. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. We are back, and baseball season is back. It is April 13th. I'm Arm Layton. He is Jeff Conine, of course. And I mean, man, you've got a lot going on, Niner. You're in college baseball right now, but big league ball is back. And uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about your opening day memories because, man, I didn't know if we were going to get an opening day this year. Yeah, it's been crazy. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me on again. Nice to be back. Uh, I have been super busy. You know, uh, got a real job now with real responsibilities, which (laughs) is something I'm not really used to. But um, uh, yeah, it was very happy to see that MLB worked out their labor issues and got back on the field and um, without much of a delay, which is good, you know, abbreviated spring training, which as a player, I was very appreciative of when I had my abbreviated spring training in 95. I thought it was one of the best really trainings ever Uh, just because six weeks is too long for us uh, as position players. You know, you basically come to spring training in shape nowadays. You've been working out all off season and you just want to, um, kind of get some game time in and, you know, it's 30 games in spring training, which is way too many. And, um, I think that spring we had three and a half weeks to get ready. And I had one of my best years ever because, you know, you walk into the season, you're fresh, you're ready to go. And, um, I think that, uh, that's something they should look at, which will never happen, but I, I like the abbreviated spring training as a player. Would you say that's a general uh, belief? I mean, I know players are so different, but if you could take a census, would you say most players felt that way? Because uh, I did notice a, an overwhelming trend was in every interview. They're like, oh, do you, do you feel like you got enough at-bats? They would ask a player, or do you feel like you got enough innings? I could understand from a pitcher, you know, wanting to get a few more starts under your belt, but for a hitter, what? You need 20 ABs, 30 ABs, and, and you feel good? Or like, yeah, I would think the general 30. consensus. 30 or 40, but I would say general consensus would be everyone was in favor of an abbreviated spring training, except for possibly the starting pitchers. You know, the starting pitchers have to get their arms ready. They need to see that live AB um, confrontation to kind of get ramped up and ready for the season. But for position players, I bet everybody was super happy this year. Well, speaking of pitchers, we're going to talk about uh, building the best arsenal from guys you faced. I've been really excited about this because I'm just excited to see who you're going to pull out with, with each pitch. I think it's a really cool example to be able to show some of the most difficult pitches you had to face uh, and, and go back down memory lane on some of these tough pitchers that, that had really unique stuff. Um, but also I want to start with your best opening day memory uh, in the spirit of the first week of baseball, uh, you experienced opening day in a few different places, right? So you would have experienced it in, in Florida, uh, Baltimore, Kansas city. And then where, where would the other opening day be Cincinnati? Did you have it for, for the yep, start in Philadelphia? Was that a nope, trade? That was in the season and New York was the end of the season. So uh, you got them all pretty much. 
So you have one in Baltimore, which makes sense. This is more because of the weather, but also I feel like opening day in Baltimore, and this is not to slight any other fan base. This is more just to prop up Baltimore. When you were playing there, was that the best opening day environment? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we're talking about the first opening day ever for the Florida Marlins was pretty spectacular as well. That kind of gets its own designation now. Yeah, that's its own pedestal opening day for me because that was my first opening day. I'd only gotten called up two other times before that with the Royals, and one was a September call-up and another one was an an August call-up. So the first opening day of your major league career is uh, special. But that one was even – more special because of the circumstances uh, with a new franchise and everything. So, but yeah, Florida, um, uh, Kansas city, uh, Baltimore and, and the reds or the, the four opening days that I had. And you had a, a snow story in Baltimore, right? Yeah. Baltimore, you know, obviously the, the fan base there um, was pretty spectacular. We, you know, when I started playing there in 1999, we uh, Cal Ripken was still uh, on the team and, Brady Anderson and, and BJ Surhoff and uh, Will Clark. I mean, we had a, we had a really star-studded lineup, and you know, we'd get we probably averaged forty thousand a game um, during my first few years there in Baltimore. Wow. Tailed off a little bit at the end because Cal Ritt retired, and uh, we weren't that good, so not many people wanted to come watch. Um, but Baltimore Camden Yards opening day is a pretty special moment, and and this year. You know, obviously it was a, a freezing cold day, uh, which can be in the Northeast in, in April. And uh, most other opening days I had in Baltimore were beautiful, but this one cer- certainly was uh, odd because it was 30 some degrees and it clouded over and we had a pretty intense snow shower uh, come through the Baltimore area. And, you know, I'm playing first base and literally the, the flakes are so big, you can barely see uh, what's going on at the plate. And they kept on playing and the pitch came in and it was uh, Ellis Burks was at the plate hits the ball. I I heard contact. I saw a swing. I heard contact, but I didn't know where the ball was going because the snowflakes were so big. And, you know, I saw him running, so I knew it was in play. And then I'm running. I just kind of looking around to see what was going on. And then finally our our right fielder, Jay Gibbons, uh, picks up a ball and, and tosses it in. And he's safe at first. There's a guy on third and we don't know what the heck's going on. And, and Mike Hargrove, our manager comes out there and goes, what are you guys doing? And he goes, that was a foul ball. And they're like, no, it wasn't. The ball was in fair territory. He picked it up and, and threw it. So sure enough, they let it stand because there's no replay back then, but replay from the cameras saw that it hit the railing on the stands and ricocheted back on the field. And nobody knew what had happened. I don't know. I guess Hargrove just happened to have a better um, vantage point because he was probably right on the line or close to it, trying to look at where it was going. And, but the umpires, they probably lost it too on the field. So it ricocheted off the, off the railing ricochets back in bounds. Jay Gibbons picks it up and throws it in and he got credited with a single. And then right after that, we went into like about a 45 minute snow delay in Baltimore. (laughs) So, this is the crazy thing because I've been reading a, a book about the old times in baseball and then the dead ball era uh, and how players used to, there was only one umpire. They would cut third base. Like they would run on the, in, on the infield grass to cut third. If the umpire was looking at a ball in the outfield or uh, a fielder's choice back then was a hit still. So I always think about it and I'm like, how many hits or different plays shook out so much differently because of the rules. 
But then even on a more modern angle, I mean, like this wasn't that long ago. And because of no replay, how many plays do you think were altered or, or like how many more hits or not hits or whatever through your playing days? How often do you think that happened without replay where something was just objectively wrong and it's in the history books forever? Well, you know, um, I like the human factor in umpiring and making calls. And hey, like I said, they're all humans and we're going to make mistakes once in a while. And I really can't, other than that one, there aren't too many yeah. plays that really stand out that were like just uh, horrible, bad calls that, that changed the course of a game. You know, famously, we saw the one that uh, messed up uh, in the playoffs uh, that kind of, I think, spurred replay um, to be a reality is that uh, I think it was Angels. Do you remember the, the call that uh, was botched that was obviously wrong because the network showed it over and over again, but there yeah. was no replay then. And uh, that's what kind of said, hey, we got to get this right, yeah. especially in the playoffs. Um, but I can't really remember that many, you know, um, yeah. these guys are pretty good at what they do. And how hard is it to play in the snow? Because I, I remember last year, a really cool moment was Miguel Cabrera hitting that home run through the snow oppo to start the season off, who, by the way, is swinging it well through the first few games, only 10 hits away from 3000, which will be pretty darn cool. Um, but I think about playing in the snow. I grew up in South Florida, as you know, your son and I played in nothing but warmth. So I know Griff experienced a little bit when he went to Lansing and some other areas, Vancouver, of course, uh, depending on the time of year, it was a little bit colder. I never really played before, below 60 degrees until I played club baseball at Syracuse. And I couldn't even swing the bat. It was so cold. I was wearing a hoodie. I, I felt like I was, I was swinging a 20 pound bat. Was it difficult for you to play in the cold? And, and is it a little bit of a difference trying to catch up to that velocity? I, I feel like it's, it's gotta be advantage pitcher. Oh, absolutely. You know, I hated playing in the cold. Um, for one, you got to put on so many layers that your body feels restricted. You can barely yes. move. You know, in, in 1997, we opened up in Cleveland, or uh, we had the Cubs opener. Uh, we opened up with them at home. Then we went to their place for the opener, April, I don't know, whatever it was, 15th or something like that. And uh, game time temp was 23 degrees uh, with a zero degree wind chill factor. And it's by far, at, the, at that time, it was the coldest game ever played at Wrigley. Oh. Uh, I don't know if that record still stands, but, um, you know, Alex Fernandez had a one hitter and we won the ball game one nothing because basically nobody wanted to touch the ball. And <laughs> the only hit was a seeing eye single that got through the middle, uh, you know, the famously long grass at um, at Wrigley. Barrett, I don't know, even know how it got through the infield because it's probably like crunching through the ice of this oh. grass that was two inches long, three inches long. But it just barely made it through uh, seeing I single up the middle. And that was the only hit of the game for the uh, Chicago Cubs. Yeah, I can't imagine one getting jammed two catching one in the palm. Um, it's it's over. Um, and especially if you're someone that can run it in on the hands of guys, they're just not going to swing. No. Uh, that's like my worst nightmare. Uh, but that was that was probably part of the positive of, of ending up in, in Florida, knowing that you're pretty much when you're at home perpetually playing in, in warm weather. And I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about hanging up the banners. So we're going to get into the arsenal in a second, but I want to talk about the banners because the Marlins just put out a video <clears throat> of you getting up on, uh, it, what would that be? Like a cherry pick? What do you call that? Like basically a cherry yeah, picker? Yeah, a lift or a, a cherry picker. You're or way up you there. Call it. it was they, way up there. The old banners, which by the way, I mean, you were with the organization when, when they hung up those banners. 
Why were they so small? That's a pretty big accomplishment. Did you ever say anything about that? Well, a lot of times um, teams will put up flags for their world championships and uh, we're in dome. So there's no wind. So if we put up a flag, it's just laying dead (laughs) and you'd never see it. So they put up these metal little pennant looking things that I agree. It could have been much larger in scale because of, you know, it was a world championship, but those were what they put up in left field to kind of simulate flags blowing in the wind uh, Ah. is what the idea was. Um, but yeah, you know, the, it's this year is the 25th anniversary of the 1997 World Series team, and uh, they're putting together an event uh, on a weekend, which unfortunately I'm traveling uh, with FIU uh, that weekend up to UAB. So I won't be in town and they wanted to, I don't know, get me involved somehow. Um, and they put up these big new banners, which are huge. Yeah, the fantastic. video is awesome. Um and they said, hey, would you be willing to come to the ballpark one day and do this? And I'm like, absolutely. So we did that on Monday and it was a lot of fun. And uh, the banners are awesome. And it you know, just brought back a lot of great memories. I was going to ask you, you know, one, the banners are huge, which is great uh, because I think the Marlins, you know, it's a lot to be proud of those two World Series. And uh, from 93 in your inception to win those two in 10 years is, is pretty absurd. Um what was what was the feeling like getting up there and being able to you know wear the teal again and and hang that up and uh, I know it's not the stadium you wanted in uh, but it was a stadium that you know you still spent a lot of time in and then uh, I, I feel like just seeing the teal seeing 03 like 97 and 03 have to have like a almost a magical number to you right where I mean those are the those are the two years where you went how many times have you said 2003 how many times have you said 1997 not to mention your son was also born in 1997. Uh, so it just seems like an all around good year. Uh, what did it feel like to kind of just stare those years in the face, see world champions and kind of feel that reminder again? Well, you know, it, it, for one, it's hard to believe it's been 25 years uh, since that, that world series title. Uh, but two, yeah. Every time that, you know, you get to see something like that, you just uh, have flashbacks to um, the reason why we put on a uniform is to win a world series championship and to see those banners up there and they have, you know, the, the photos or the, um, images of the World Series trophies and the logos, the actual World Series logos that they use uh, for those years were on those banners. And, um, you know, just to realize how lucky I was to be part of something so special um, because not many people uh, get to put on a ring on their finger and say they were world champion. Not at all. And especially to do it twice is, is pretty special. And uh, last thing on this is, how long ago did this kind of come about? When when did this when did the Marlins approach you about this opportunity to be able to you know be a part of this and uh, have that video now, which is awesome to, to to hang those banners up? Yeah, I guess about a month ago, um, they contacted me and said, you know, we know you're not going to be able to come to the celebration uh, in mid May, and um, you know, would you be willing to come to the stadium and do something else? They didn't even really know at the time what it was going to be. That was the initial contact. Um, but I said, sure, you know, I'll come do something. And then they approached me with, you know, the new banners and, and, uh, me kind of finishing them off, uh, on the installation and unveiling them on opening day. And I thought, uh, that was a pretty cool idea. So not scared of heights at all. I wouldn't say at all, but, uh, no, I felt, I felt good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Sebastian, my, my, my lift driver was, was pretty convincing and I had a harness on. So I figured if anything went wrong, you know, I'd just be dangling up there. <laughs> still be safe. Could you imagine that? <laughs> Cause they have the video, they had the cameras fired up. So that video would have got out. Um, 
Instead, we got the nice thumbs up as you uh, unveiled it, which is you can see on uh, the, My- the Miami Marlins social media. Uh, but let's get into this arsenal because I have no idea what pitches you're going to bring out here. If, if a couple pitches that I'm thinking of don't make the cut, I definitely want to ask you about those at the end. And if you have any honorable mention pitches, feel free to, to throw those in there. Uh, but I guess let's just start with it. How many pitches is this arsenal that we're building? I didn't even think about that because we could technically go, we could put a knuckleball in there. Uh, we could put a, a few other things in there. How many pitches are you going with here? Um, I came up with probably, you know, a couple from the left side, a couple from the right side. Um, I did have some uh, hives break out when I started thinking about knuckleball and, and Tim Wakefield, because that's my career lowest batting average against is Mr. Wakefield. So uh, I got to throw that one in for yep. just because, you know, he's the one that gave me the most trouble in my entire career. So uh, we'll lead off with that one. Tim Wakefield's knuckleball for some reason gave me fits. There are other knuckleballers that I faced in the past that I did pretty well against. Um, I mean, Tom Candiotti and, um sparks was that his name uh from detroit uh there's some other guys that didn't really phase me and and i had decent success but for for some reason wakefield just gave me nightmares what is there something that you can really put into words about what made that knuckleball tougher uh was it just even more unpredictable like what is the difference between a a really good knuckleball and and a pretty good knuckleball well i think thing with Wakefield too, is he changed speeds a lot with it. Like he'd throw you a 63 mile an hour knuckleball and then throw a 72 mile an hour knuckleball. And, and it's almost like fastball changeup when yeah. you see you're, you're used to so slow, so slow. And then you see one eight miles an hour faster. You're like, it kind of surprises you. And then every once in a while he'd toss in an 82 mile an hour fastball, you know, when he's behind the counter, uh, even O2 and guys would be just frozen because it looked like a hundred. I was going to say it probably looked like gas from there. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, the guy could pitch, he pitched with a knuckleball rather than just throwing the knuckleball, the same thing every time and relying on that movement to really, uh, which was moving all over the place. He relied on changing speeds as well, which really kept hitters off balance. So fastball, speaking of what was the best fastball uh, you faced in, in your career uh, in terms of just the most difficult to hit? Because I think a common misconception, and we see it really big in, in today's game, of course, Velo reigns supreme, uh, but even more so, we see fastballs that are harder to hit with a certain profile. And, and back then we didn't have, you know, the, the spin rates and, and the induced vertical break and any of that, but guys were still naturally doing that. We just didn't really know what to call it or how to quantify it. There's certain fastballs that just look harder and stay on a line more than other fastballs. And I'm, I'm curious, is this more of a velo guy, more of a deception in, in profile guy, or a little bit of both? Just maybe the most devastating fastball ever to be thrown. And it's uh, Mariano Rivera. I mean, yeah. we're talking about a guy that, you know, basically built a, an entire career around one pitch. And there's nobody in the history of pitching that has done that as successfully as, as he has. And, you know, I, I think I've told you this story before, but, uh, you know, when I first time I faced him, guys are saying, uh, I said, what does he got? What does he got? And they go, yeah, he throws a cutter. I'm like, all right, what else? He goes, no, that's it. He throws a cutter. I'm like, that's it. One pitch. That's all I have to look for. And, you know, I got to Yankee stadium and just the ease of the delivery. Um, and then after seeing the first one, I, I step out and I realize it's not a cutter. It was basically a 95 mile an hour slider. So he's throwing 95 with ease with that kind of break. Um, and you realize that that's why he only needs one pitch because uh, it was insane. 
it, it's it's crazy. And I'd love to see. I, I don't know. I'm sure we could probably find it somewhere. Someone quantified how many bats he broke. You know, yeah. How many how many forests he's just devastated because You're of how build many-, many houses with all the wood that he <laughs> chopped down. I, I think that was one of the gifts, right? Someone gave him a rock. One of the teams gave him a, on his farewell tour, a rocking chair made of, of broken bats. Yeah. I thought that was just, I thought that was just awesome. Was there a four seamer that ever stood out to you? Um, Cause obviously the cut fastballs, that's the most devastating by far uh, with Mariano. Was there ever a, a four seamer that had just some, some type of profile that was just so tough to hit? You know what? Um, I loved four seamers. I didn't care really how hard anybody threw. I, I thought eventually I was going to catch up to one of them because um, I like seeing that velo, especially the guys think they could throw it by you. I remember Bartolo Colon early in his career was a 98 mile an hour guy that uh, you could tell when he was going to go with his max effort pitch. And it was always a four seamer. And I didn't really mind facing that at all. But later on in his career, when he became a pitcher and started sinking it at 94, uh, I thought he he became much more difficult to face. But uh, before then, four-seamers never really bothered me, so I didn't even put a four-seamer on my list. Interesting. That That is really interesting. Because it's funny, four-seamers are like what what everybody is trying to go after now in the top of the zone. And But there are guys who crush them, who absolutely crush them. Um, and, and it's it's a unique uh, how every hitter has their different tendencies. So what what is the breaking ball? that you put well, in Well, I have to go, since I did with a, the cutter with Mariano Rivera, I did have to add in a sinker, which uh, obviously is more difficult to hit for me anyway. And uh, this guy probably had the best, maybe even rivaling um, Mariano on the other side of the plate is Kevin Brown had one of the most devastating sinkers uh, I've ever seen. I got to face him once when he was at Texas, um, but playing behind him and seeing what he carved up uh, on the other way of the pitch going the other way into a right-handed hitter. Uh, he had arguably two of the best years I've ever seen of, of starting pitcher. Uh, one year we couldn't score any runs for him. I think he was 16 and 10 with a one seven ERA for the entire season. And I'm telling you, his uh, fastball was absolutely devastating. I'm pulling it up right now. Um, he was 17 and 11 with a one eight nine ERA. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's some Degrom stuff right there. It's just, insane. Just no yeah, runs. If we would have scored him any runs. He probably would have won the Cy Young that year, and because uh, he could have easily won twenty games. Um, and just one of the most intense competitors I ever played with as well. This guy was just a absolute maniac on the mound, and uh, would do anything it took uh, to win a baseball game. Well, I feel like you got to almost be that kind of maniac to to pitch a no hitter the way he did. Uh, and and he was someone that got a ton of ground balls right and. What makes the sinker more devastating? Is it the amount of break or how late the break is on it? Because it's it's that late drop, right? That kind of either dives in on your hands if you're a righty or or in on uh, under the barrel. Is that what really makes it so difficult? Yeah, it's it's the depth on it. You know, I didn't mind a fastball that ran in that stayed in the same plane. You know, you could time that up pretty well, and yeah, you got to get the bat head out a little bit sooner. But if you add, you know. Uh, exceptional depth to that pitch. Now you're talking about two planes you have to worry about and trying to connect something that's not even there yet. And his sinker was, you know, he could throw at 96. Uh, his four seam was probably 98, but most of his sinkers were mid nineties. And that's just a, an incredibly difficult pitch to time up. Yeah. I, you know, I'm actually looking at Brown's career numbers and I, I'm honestly surprised he hasn't 
he didn't get more Hall of Fame consideration. Um, I, he had I, a stretch I, there that was pretty impressive. I mean, I look at like what he did. Two hundred eleven wins back then, I guess, wasn't as big of a deal. If he, if if Kevin Brown just finished his career now, I think it'd be a totally different lens. Because I look at yeah, a Mike Messina who was phenomenal. Uh, but I, I just, I think it's pretty interesting. I think Kevin Brown's right there with him. Again, it's it's amazing. We talk about it, and that's like the theme of this podcast is I know all these guys. I knew they were great, but you don't realize how great they are until sometimes you lead me back. I revisit. I look at these numbers. I'm like, damn, this guy was this guy's borderline Hall of Famer, um, or and or at least really deserves a, a lot of consideration there. Um, so Kevin Brown sinker. Now do we go to slider slash curveball? And do you have two? Yeah, we can ones? do a slider. Um, there's a couple of them that were that were decent. Uh, one of the hardest to hit for me and one of the, the sharpest breaking was uh, John Smoltz had just an absolute devastating uh, wipeout slider. Um, not only, and that, he only used it basically when he was a starter, he used, he went more fastball split when he was the, the closer. Really? Yeah. But for uh, when he was a starter, man, it was, it was fastball slider. He didn't have, he didn't even come up with a, a split yet. Um, and it was just uh the late break on it and how hard he threw it. You just didn't, it looked straight for the longest time. And then all of a sudden it just took a left turn. Um, like you wouldn't believe it, it was just a very sharp, sharp and, and deep break on it. So I'm giving him the nod for one of the best uh, breaking balls I ever faced. Uh, honorable mention, I would say curveball wise, Barry Zito had one of the best yes. curveballs you're ever going to see. This thing was 12, six, like a legitimate 12, six that, had just a massive amount of break. I mean, it, you give up on it because it's at your letters and they would drop in for a strike um, often, which uh, was just, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a crazy well, I pitch. think we can, we can go slider curve. We can, we, there's got, I mean, that's, that's a thing. Guys throw a slider curve now. I mean, especially yeah. if it's 12, six horizontal breaking slider. So I, 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 that's a specific one. That was one of mine that I had in my back pocket in case you didn't go to Barry Zito. So I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about Zito. That curveball was what more in the low seventies. Um, yeah, it was but, not hard at all. And you know, fastball. He liked to live up in the zone with the fastball. It was pretty straight. Um, so he got a lot of fly ball outs with that fastball up in the zone. And then he'd come in with that curveball, which is almost in the same plane as that high fastball. And then, geez, even though it was so much slower. Uh, the break on it was just sick. I don't know if you could pull up video of, of what it looks like from a, a TV camera, but it looks like it breaks five feet. Obviously, it doesn't break that much, but it, it it broke a lot. And what was the difficulty? Was it just, okay, you see the pitch and trying to predict where it's going to finish and it ends up breaking more than that? Or registering that it's not the fastball up in the zone? Oh crap! It's the curveball, and it's too late to to adjust because your body's gone. Like, what what was the challenge? What made the pitch so good? I think because as it entered the strike zone, the the downward tilt was so severe that it was hard to hit. You know, you almost had to hit up on it to meet it because it was coming down so hard. So, so you're almost like popping up or rolling over. Yeah, yeah, it was just a hard pitch to one predict where it was going to end up, but two to make uh, solid contact uh, because of the down angle was so sharp. And talk about a guy that at his peak was as good as anybody we've seen in the modern era. Like those those couple seasons that he had, where he won the Cy Young. I mean, he was as good as anybody. Health, you know, some elbow issues kind of crept in and shortened things up for him, but he was incredibly dominant. Uh, one last thing on Smoltz before we move on to the next pitch. 
What what makes the slider so difficult? Is it is it the the way that they're able to mask the spin? Is it the late break? Is it the amount of horizontal break? Uh, is it case by case? Like what, what was it that really made Smoltz's so difficult? Well, you know, all the above, um, obviously, but I think the main and most important thing is the deception. Like he made it look like a fastball out of his hand uh, because it wasn't really, I mean, it's probably, it was a hard slider. I'm going to say it's probably 86, 87, where he threw 95. So it's not terribly different. There wasn't a huge differential in speed. So when it came out of, out of his hand, you had to be ready for the fastball and his looked like a fastball out of his hand. And then all of a sudden, you know, midway, this thing just breaks so hard and so sharp um, with depth, you know, and that obviously if it's a, if it's a, you know, Frisbee slider that kind of goes across the zone, uh, you know, horizontally, that that's not that difficult to pitch to hit, but it is, it's had depth as well. So that's what made it really hard. I'd venture to say, I have no way to fact check this, but I'd venture to say John Smoltz is the only pitcher to lead the league in saves and lead the league in wins. I would be shocked if somebody yeah, else has he's done got, that. He's got records for most wins and most saves in a career, obviously. Um, I mean, I don't think it's close. <laughs> 55 saves one year as a 35-year-old uh, with the Braves in 2002, and then led the league in wins in 96 with 24 with the Braves, and then in 2006 with 16 as a 39-year-old. Again, with, with the Braves. So pr- pretty absurd. Uh, John Smoltz was was a really, really, really darn good pitcher. And, of course, a Hall of Famer. This is what I'm really excited about. Because I guess you could go with the Smoltz, the Smoltz splitter here. Wh- who's change up? Trevor Hoffman. Ah. Trevor Hoffman. Can't eat. I mean, it's the most devastating change up, uh, you know, like what uh, Mariano did with uh, his cutter. Trevor did with his change up. Um, it was that good. Like, and it was just a weird changeup too, because, you know, a lot of changeups nowadays, you, you know, you got the, the circle change and the, there's a lot of downward movement because it he puts side spin on it. With yeah. A good, really good arm fade, that, that fade his, his almost had fastball spin because the way he threw it was almost like he came off of his hand and produced backward spin, but the way he choked it off in his hand, it, it looked like a fastball coming in. It was literally, 10 or 12 miles, 15 miles an hour slower. It was a very slow changeup. So was and it like a palm ball? Yeah, I think so. Because early in his career, you know, I don't think people realize that Trevor Hoffman threw 95 miles an hour. I mean, he threw really hard. Then he had some shoulder issues. And at the end, he was throwing 85. I mean, he really uh, wasn't a velo guy at all. But he made a reputation and a living on that changeup because people would look for it. He could throw 85 right by you. But even when you're looking for the changeup, it was so slow and the arm speed was so good, you'd swing right over it every time. So it just looked just like the fastball and you can't, it was, you can't. It became the same plane, everything. Just like it looked, you swore it was a fastball and you started your swing and it just never got there. Literally never got there because he very rarely missed up with it. It was always on that same plane, but you know, it ended up low. If you could take it, it'd probably be a ball most times. Um, But man, he got more swings and misses off that pitch, I think, than maybe any pitch. Am I missing any other offerings? Is that everything? Oh, no. Well, there's a couple uh, other pitches that, um, you know, the Randy Johnson slider. Uh, oh, yeah. We got to go from the, the left side now. Devastating uh, pitches and maybe baseball history. I mean, this guy, you know, I think he's second all time in strikeouts and, and record holder and, and strikeouts in a season and K's per nine and all this stuff. There's a reason for that. Not only did he was he six ten and threw 98, but that slider is probably uh, the single best 
breaking ball from a lefty maybe ever. And even to righties, it was just impossible. Oh, he, 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 back, he back footed to you and you know, it had depth as well and threw it hard. And, you know, you're geared up for 98 and he'd throw that 88 down at your back foot, man. It's uh, it was a late sharp breaker as well. Kind of like Smoltz's, but from the left side, but even harder. And uh, with a weird arm angle, you know, you have that really far out uh, three quarter arm angle that, um, man, when he threw that down and in, that was brutal. Did everything look brutal. like it was coming in the other batter's box? Yeah, from pretty that much. Point? Yeah, because, you know, he came out, you know, when you stride at 6'10 and release the ball, you're 50 some feet away, you know, 60 feet, six inches is the, is the rubber. But uh, with that kind of wingspan and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, stride length, He's probably 52 feet when he releases the ball, and that's uh, it's getting on you in a hurry. A random question, but just relevant because uh, I, I had the opportunity to meet him. MLB was nice enough to invite us, uh, Peter and I, to, the, to their HQ, their office in, in New York and Midtown for opening day, and they had this cool event, and it was like a meet and greet with with a lot of other you know creators, journalists, whatever, and there were some players there. And CC Zabathia was there, uh, and he is a huge dude, but also – in great shape, like slimmed down, has been really oh, he's proud of crazy of shape right now. His kid plays in some of these travel teams that we scouted during the uh, off season for FIU, and uh, I saw him, and I'm like, "Holy cow, man!" He, he looks slimmed like a down, and he's in, yeah, he's dra- he's jacked right now. He is in crazy shape, and and, and good for him. And I, I, the first thing I said to him was was I just appreciated the story that he shared about his you know his battle with alcohol and. Uh, while he was playing. And uh, that was an HBO documentary that I thought was, was really, really well done. Um, but the other thing, once we got past that, when we were talking baseball, the cutters what extended his career, but he was somebody that went fastball, crazy extension gets on you in, in half a second. Did you ever face CC Sabathia? Cause he came up in 2001 with Cleveland. Um, yeah. He gave up. I'm the first home run he ever gave up. No way. I believe. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. See, I had no yeah. idea. People be yeah, like, oh, arm just, teed, arm just teed niner up for that one. Like, no, I had no clue. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, we basically had – he gave a tell on his changeup. Um, you know, back then he threw really hard uh, upper 90s, which uh, in 2001 was rare that anybody, especially lefty, would throw that hard. And uh, he had a tell on his changeup that, um, you know, he, I don't know if it was – he came set a little higher than he did on his fastball. Uh, so we got that pretty early and I could just spit on the changeup and wait for a fastball. And then, um, the first time I did it, my teammates were kind of mad. They're like, dude, at least like, you know, act like you're fooled and like try to do a check swing or something. Cause I just statued a, a really good changeup. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, it was either the next pitch or next to bat. I got him. He, uh, I knew, was, I knew a fastball was coming. It was the next pitch. I just pulled up the box score from the game. It was his first career start. Um, so very, very rude for you to do that in his debut. But uh, you were hitting clean up that game. Welcome to the big leagues for him. And uh, yeah, three run shot. That That's pretty crazy. I, I had no <laughs> idea. And I'm sure he learned from that one because he seemed to have a very good career afterwards. Oh, he did. He was dominant. Um, Absolutely uh, but, dominant. But yeah, that was your first home run of the year. And that was the first home run that CC Sabathia ever gave up. That is crazy. See, you never know where these are, where these episodes are going to go. I just met CC, thought he was nice and wanted to bring him up. And uh, it turns out you welcomed him to the big leagues. You gave yeah. him his, his baptism in the big leagues with, with a home run. Uh, that lineup, by the way, a lot of notable names, pretty fun lineup. Brady Anderson in the leadoff spot. Bordick, who you talk about, probably the biggest robbery of a gold glove ever, right? Uh, Delino to Shields. 
Niner. And then you had Jay Gibbons behind you, Cal Ripken, Melvin Mora, and, and Jerry Harrison. Uh, that's a really notable team. And then the guys you were playing in that game, Juan Gonzalez, Jim Tomey, uh, Omar Vizquel, Roberto Alomar. Uh, it's just fun going down, down memory lane here. And some of these games are like, there's a handful of Hall of Famers playing back and forth here. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. I cannot believe that you – CC still had a good game, by the way, though. Five and two-thirds three earned runs, the one home run. So I think, I think everybody was right to be upset with you after you, you gave up the tell. I think he settled in. (laughs) How, how often does that happen in the big leagues? Is it usually young guys that you pick up a tell? Like how often are, are, are you guys really coming together and saying, Oh wow. Like this guy's tipping his pitches right now. Um, It's difficult. Most guys, you know, have refined their craft so much that they don't really do anything, but um, some guys were, so subtle and some guys were so good at picking it up. I remember Carlos Delgado and Sean Green were two of the best I've ever played with. And uh, they could pick up this guy bats an eyelash the wrong way. And he's like, Oh, there's, there's a breaking ball. And I'm like, what are you seeing? What are you looking at? It was crazy how the most minute uh, tell you could ever pick up, they would pick it up and they'd be able to figure out what this guy was throwing. But for the most part, most guys are, uh, I remember Josh Johnson one year, in spring training, you know, Josh Johnson was uh, probably the best pitcher in the National League for a few years oh. before injuries uh, got him. But, uh, you know, he was in spring training and, and he'd come set and this finger started wiggling. I, I looked at it and sure enough, he throws a breaking ball. Next pitch, that finger didn't do anything. Fastball. Next pitch, do it. He just does this in the glove hand. Breaking ball. And I'm like, uh, dude. This is like so obvious. It's crazy, but you're tipping your curveball. You're wiggling. He goes, he had no idea. He's like, I am. I'm like, yeah. So you had to get one of those leather things that goes over the finger. So you don't wiggle it, you know, cause everyone kind of puts their finger out and now they've got this leather piece that goes over that will hide that finger. And he had to do that because he had no, it was totally subconscious. It's just a weird quirk. Wiggling his finger. That, I would be so paranoid about that, about that as a pitcher. Just like, am I doing anything right now? Uh, and before we get to the Jersey, I will say you bring up 2005. I still, to this day, talk about that 2005 team, and I don't. I I thought that team was going to win the World Series. Maybe that was me being a kid, but I thought that team was so talented. And I look back at it though all the time, and I'm like, this team maybe not win the World Series. This team could have made some noise. Uh, And I'm going to go through the lineup real quick uh, because I think we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but this was a recent topic I brought up uh, because this was the first team that I really watched the whole season really like fell in love with baseball because Oh three, you know, we, we were just really young. This team was a blast. Paula Duca catching Delgado as the first baseman, Luis Castillo at second, Alex Gonzalez at short, Mike Lowell at third, Miggy and left Pierre in center, who was my, you know, my, my favorite player growing up. I always wanted to just touch, smack the ball over the yard and bunt and do all the things JP did Juan Encarnacion and right. And then you, you were like, it says it has you as utility, but you had 131 games played and 300 84 plate appearances and hit 304. So uh, it was just a team that was just so deep in that regard too. Uh, and then also having Damian Easley, uh, a guy off the bench that was phenomenal and could play all over. And then the pitching was great. D train gave you 22 wins that year. AJ Burnett was solid. Josh Beckett was solid. Uh, you know, it, it tailed off a little bit, but Jason Vargas was good as a, as a rookie in limited action and, and Brian Moeller anchored the back of the rotation. And then your, your guy, Todd Jones, who, uh, I know you have uh, like some funny stories with by all accounts, an awesome guy. 
uh, was nasty in the back end of the bullpen, but I think the rest of the bullpen was a little bit shaky. Was that what, what did the Marlins in? Like that team was insane. Yeah, we had a great team, a really good team. And I had had shoulder surgery that off season. Um, and that's why I had limited uh, at bats. I didn't start the season on time. Uh, I didn't make the opening day, you know, um, lineup because I was having issues with that. But um, it was a great team and we were in it very late. You know, we went to Houston in September and we were battling them for the wild card. And um, we faced Clemens, as a matter of fact, you know, two years post uh, supposed retirement. Uh, Which one? And uh, we, we scored three or four in the first inning. We thought we had them. They came back and beat us uh, that game. And I think that kind of took the wind out of our sails because we only had two weeks to go. And I think we were down by one game maybe in the wild card. And this was a pivotal series for us to, to leapfrog them and go into the wild card lead. And I don't know, we lost two out of three or we got swept or something like that and just kind of uh, never recovered from that. 83 and 79 finish. Uh one of the few over 500 finishes the Marlins have had uh, really since the, the, the world series title. Uh, and only uh, they have not finished over 500 besides the 2020 season, uh, I believe since 2009. Uh, so pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, but I thought this team was going to be the one that, that could get back there still was so much fun to watch and really helped foster my love for the game early on uh, with a really, really talented and, and fun team that still you know played good ball all around. Uh, I want to get to the jersey now, as always. As well, well as one, we, one. I got one other picture we got to mention, ooh, just as a go. as a um, total Arsenal type guy. That, okay. Uh, Greg Maddox was the most. Uh, yeah, I was going to say one one pitcher's command, right? It would be his. The the just the most ridiculous way to manipulate a baseball and make it move in ways I don't think we've ever seen since. Uh, or before that, it was like the fastball moved in these incredulous ways. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of these things they post on on Twitter and uh, the Greg Maddox uh, front hip fastball to a lefty and and the way the curveball and change up. I mean, this guy was a magician out there and the way that he could uh, make any pitch move. He had five different fastballs you know, he could cut it. He could sink it. He could ride it. I mean, uh, this guy was literally a magician and, and one of the best pitchers or maybe the best pitcher, you know, that, that threw sub 90 ever. And if it's five pitches or five different versions of the fastball going in five different directions, how, how the hell do you game plan for that? Uh, you just wait and wait as long as you can to see if you can recognize where it's going to be. And you try to put it in play. And I had actually had some success off of him. I think I had over 300 off Greg Maddox, but it was a uh, not, there was no damage going on <laughs> with Greg Maddox. I was getting singles mainly. And it was a survival. It was survival when you faced him because, like you said, you never know what direction it's coming from, where it's going to break. Uh, he had a curveball. He had a slider. He had a sinker. He had a four-seamer. Uh, the changeup was devastating. I mean, he could do anything he wanted with the baseball. So it's, to, to round out the arsenal, it's Greg Maddox's command uh, that, that we're putting out pinpoint. there. Yeah. Absolutely pinpoint. And with any pitch, didn't matter what pitch it was. <sighs> Any any uh, notable omissions, honorable mentions before we get to the jersey? Um, I will say the probably the most devastating single pitch, just based on the reactions of major league hitters, was Brian Harvey's split finger. Uh, he was with the original team. Uh, I faced him when he was with the Angels. Straight over the top guy through ninety five, but he had a split finger that he threw from straight over the top, just like his fastball that 
dove out of the zone. It just never made it to the plate. And guys would swing at that pitch every single time. It was crazy how many swings and misses on balls he would get from that single pitch. And I think, um, well, that year we won 64 games and he saved 46 of them, which is <laughs> the highest, highest percentage of state of saves of a team's wins uh, in the history of the game. I think that still stands. Um, but just uh, the single most, he could embarrass hitters more than any other single pitch that I ever saw. He finished 14th in MVP voting <laughs> that year because, Crazy. because on a, of, on a 90, 90, uh, uh, 64, 98 win team as a closer, uh, as a and closer. finished eighth in Cy Young voting. Uh, it's pretty awesome. So what, what was the injuries that kind of cut him short? Yep. He got injured that next year and never really came back to you the sp- form he was before. It's purely speculative, but I, I feel like splitters just have to have a different level of stress on your elbow. And no, there's been theories on it. No one's really been able to corroborate that. But I feel like you just see this nosedive with a lot of guys with splitters. And I, and I almost play around with my hand and I feel that. And you can almost feel your elbow tense up a little bit. It's the nastiest pitch, but I think there's a reason why not everybody throws it. It seems like it's a lot of strain there. Would you well, feel it was that in way? vogue there for a while? You know, Mike Scott with the, uh, the Astros made it famous. Uh, was it Craig, the pitching coach for San Francisco, uh, taught him that splitter? Yep. And everyone got in the splitter. All of a sudden, everyone's throwing splitters. And I didn't like it because it was a devastating pitch, but uh, I'm glad there was some negatives to it because nobody, uh, after probably five or six years stretch, people stopped throwing it. Stopped I think throwing. it was it was really hard on their on their elbow. Well, that's what makes Otani so good now too. Is we're seeing some of these players, especially those that come uh, from Japan, come and bring yeah, that, that splits over there. Yeah, bring that splitter back over, and uh, it, it, it's devastating. Hideo Nomo had a devastating split. You know, he threw that split and he no hit us in Baltimore one time. So. <laughs> I was on the receiving end of that thing quite a bit. It's one of those where when that pitch is on, it's you almost know it's going to be hard to get a hit, right? Like you can almost tell. I feel like when a splitter guy is on, it's going to be a problem. But the thing yeah. is, sometimes those pitches are, are aren't working, and those guys get blown up sometimes. And you see it with with Tanaka when he was well, here. If you get it if you get it elevated and there's not much movement on it, you know it's like a hanging changeup, but yeah. uh, harder than a changeup. It's only three four miles an hour off a fastball, and when it's elevated and it's got a little movement, it's going to get crushed. So let's get to the jersey to, to wrap up here. Uh, it's D-backs, I can tell. Um, Tis. That's one of my favorite jerseys, by the way. It's the cool – so, jersey. again, for, for those watching on YouTube, you can see it, obviously. Uh, if you are listening, it's the – was that their home their home jersey with the – was it, like, purple pinstripes? It's not quite teal. Is it, like, an aqua color with purple? And it's really funny that you picked this jersey because – uh, MLB was nice enough when we went to the HQ, they gave us a gift card to the store downstairs that expired that day. Uh, so we're like, all right, we're going downstairs. So I'm going and I'm looking at hats and that logo stood out to me. And I was like, this is a really cool logo. It's a shame the D-backs are going to lose hundred games because this is a really cool logo. This team has, has cool stuff. And here you are picking that same Jersey. What, uh, what, what made you pick it before we get to the player? Just, is there a, is there any theme behind it or you just, you just like this Jersey, you know, like I'm pulling this one out. Today. I just like the Jersey and you know, I'm just trying to mix it up for you. Luis Gonzalez. Good guess. Good guess, but wrong. Underrated Marlin, by the way, at like 42 years old. Um, he played, he played for the fish. That I played year. against him my whole minor league career, you know, it kind of came up at the same time together and just an awesome dude. Uh, really enjoyed playing against him. And uh, we did a couple of events here or there together and just uh, a really good leader. Talk about big time juice, uh, 57 bombs in 2001, uh, ball flies in Arizona, but 
I mean, he also hit 325 <laughs> that season. And this is the craziest thing. 325, 429, 688 slash line that year, finished third in MVP voting in 2001. Crazy. It's like, what did you have to do back then to win an MVP? <laughs> it's it's crazy. Well, Bonds hit 73 that year, so that doesn't help. Uh, position. Pitcher. Oh, Come Randy on, Johnson. Is, Randy yeah. Johnson. Yeah. This is a layup. Overthought that one. That was a layup. Ooh, that is an insane jersey. I feel like I say that every time, but that is an insane jersey. So – Randy in those colors, what is it? The name is the name blue or blue. And then the, the number is purple on the back. Let me yeah. see again. The name is blue. Number is purple. What are your honest thoughts on that Jersey before we, we get a little bit more into Randy. Cool. Super cool. Jersey. I, I, I love these it, uniforms. I think it's, I don't know with you sometimes cause you're, you're old school. Um, so you probably hate these city connect jerseys. I assume the what? Have you seen the the city connect jerseys that the teams have been? Oh, you don't want to see those. We'll save that. Right. For <laughs> we'll save that for next episode. You're going to hate them. Um, they're ridiculous. The Astros just pulled out these space city jerseys, it's a whole different topic. But anyways, we talked a little bit about Randy, but we didn't get too deep into it. Uh, and I assume that's because you, you knew you had this uh, on the back burner here. Randy Johnson didn't really dominate until he was, you know, 27, 28 years old with Seattle. Right. And when he first came up, he led the league in walks three straight years. How scary did, was that? Very scary. He did not know where it was going. Uh, one of my first starts in the big leagues uh, was because of Randy Johnson, because George Brett had Randy Johnson itis that day. Um, did not want to face him because he was just new to the, the Mariners. And like you said, that might've been one of the years he led the league in walks, had no idea where he was going. And, you know, he threw a hundred. So that was a scary at bat for a rookie um, getting in the box, facing that guy. Led the league in hit by pitches also uh, with 18 and 16 back-to-back years, hit over a hundred or hit 190 batters. But I mean, on the positive side, he led the league in strikeouts. What was, I believe 10 times he struck out nearly 5,000 batters. 4,875, 100 complete games, 4,135 innings. When did you get that jersey from him? I assume it would have been relatively later. Uh, yeah, well, they came and played us uh, interleague. No, not interleague. Um, they played us late. It was probably between 03 and 05 um, when the Diamondbacks came to town. And I asked him if he'd sign it, and he did. How the hell did he pitch at 45 years old? I always look at these guys and I mean, like you, you played later than most. And I just try to imagine being on a mound every fifth day. I mean, at 44 years old, he threw 184 innings for Arizona. I mean, which today is like that, that would put him in the top 15 top of the league. starter. Yeah. yeah. Well, how about Wayno? Wayno looks great again. <laughs> Wayno could probably pitch till he's 50 if he wanted to. Crazy. Um, but uh, knows yeah. how to pitch. final thoughts on, on, what I think is probably one of the best lefties to ever play. Where do you think he stacks up uh, Randy Johnson in terms of, of against in the modern era, you know, I don't like comparing him to like Cy Young and like Christy Mathewson. Like what's the point of doing that in the modern I mean, era? W- where does he stack up with any other Southpaw? Southpaw. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a better one in my book. I mean, with a combination of, uh, you know, Tom Glavin obviously was just, a mastermind and won 300 games and, you know, was on great teams with the Braves and blah, 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 uh, hall of famer, but you're never afraid to face Tom Glavin. 
you knew you're going to have a tough time. You knew it was going to be frustrating. You knew you're probably going to get you out, but you were never afraid of Tom Glavin. You put the fear factor of Randy Johnson in throwing the way he did with that slider. Uh, He's one of the toughest lefties I've ever faced. And uh, I can't even think of one that would be ranked above him in, in his career. I'm with you. That's number one guy I would not want to face without a doubt. Uh, To wrap up, you have a three-game set starting tomorrow at FIU. You're hosting number 11, Southern Miss. Number 11. I'm shocked that they're number 11. 2.88 team ERA. Oh, so they pitch. They pitch. I see Southern Miss. I assume that they just have a bunch of big, burly mashers. You know, I'm not expecting a, a team that pitches. They've got a, a fairly uh, decent lineup. There's only, I think, two or three guys sitting over 300 um, spread out power-wise, but but they can pitch. That's that's how they're winning is their pitching is very, very good. Well, hopefully FIU can, can snag two out of three there, just coming off of a win against uh, Western Kentucky. That was in Bowling Green. Uh, oh, just baseball undershirt. There we go. There we that? go. I appreciate oh, that. Some swag. Let's go. And we were going to have some more merch coming out soon uh, with some updated uh, design, which we will obviously send your way. Um, that'll do it for today's episode. Best of luck in this three-game set. That's the best combination, by the way. A Randy Johnson throwback jersey with the Just Baseball undershirt is, is perfect. It's absolutely Doesn't get any better than that, does it? No, it does not. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't get better than this episode. This was a blast. I think next time we can do building your best position player with a tool from each player. Obviously we're going to take your hit tool and then everything else we'll, we'll pick from other players. Yeah. Yeah, We'll take, we'll take your, your mental approach to the game. Um, And then we'll, we'll take tools from everybody else. How about that? (laughs) All right. All right. I'll go with that. Uh, We'll, we'll talk to you hopefully next week as we start to settle in a little bit more college baseball season is, is winding down a little bit. I did one more month. um, And then you'll probably have a little bit more, more time and and I'll be more settled in because now we know the lockout is over and baseball season is starting and we can actually settle into a little bit more structure. But as always, I I, I love doing these episodes with you. Uh, I'm excited to get on the position player side of things next time. And uh, hopefully we'll talk, we'll be talking about a a sweep upset of Southern Miss. Uh, That would be very nice to report. Thanks, Jeff.